0: Hi everybody, welcome to Add Passion and Stir. I'm Billy Shore, I'm here with my sister Debbie Shore, and this is our weekly conversation about food, passion, making a difference in the world. We're joined today by Charlotte Moss, an interior designer, author, philanthropist, author of 11 books, including now this unbelievably gorgeous book called Home a celebration. The foreword was written by Darren Walker, president of the Ford Foundation, who will be joining us in a moment. And an introduction was also written by my sister, as well as by Charlotte Moss. No Kid Hungry's work is fueled by the incredible generosity of partners like Hickory Farms. Since our partnership began in 2008, Hickory Farms has raised over $7 million to support No Kid Hungry. You can learn more about our partnership and purchase gifts that give back by going to hickoryfarms.com slash no for every give back gift box and filet gift purchased. Hickory Farms will donate $5 to help end childhood hunger. Thanks everybody for joining in. And today is the pub date. I'm going to hold it up again. The pub date for this book, Home, a Celebration. It benefits Share Our Strengths, No Kid Hungry campaign. We're going to be talking to Charlotte and to Darren as soon as he joins us about why they came to this work and how they came to this book. The book, by the way, includes a cast of contributors. It's mind-boggling, and part of this conversation, Charlotte, has to be about how you got them. They range from Al Roker to Bianca Jagger, from Bette Midler to John Grisham and Renee Grisham, Seth Godin, Drew Barrymore. I mean, it's it's really amazing, and there's you know more than a hundred people like that. So let's get right into it. First of all, thank you, Charlotte, for having this idea, for having the vision, for wanting to benefit Share Our Strength's No Kid Hungry campaign, which this book has done already in a very powerful way. I think we've raised over a quarter of a million dollars, and the book's just going on sale today. It's quite remarkable. But for those who haven't followed your career as closely as some of us have, tell us a little bit about how you came to this work in general, and then Where did this book idea come from?
1: Oh, gosh. Well, I'll make the career thing short then, because we really want to talk about the book. But I spent part of my career on Wall Street. And long story short, my firm went through a merger. I did not want to continue on with Wall Street. And I'd always had something in the back of my mind. and knew nothing. I'd had no formal training about decorating. So I just sort of jumped off the cliff and took my last Wall Street bonus to England and bought a container of antiques. And said, well, let's just give it a go. And it was the 80s. We hit some good timing. And I started decorating. And I've been doing that now for 36 years.
0: Well, Charlotte, I got to ask you, you know, one of the things we always talk about on Add Passion and Stir is is about how many people have a passion that sometimes goes, you know, unrealized or underappreciated or their day job gets in the way. And it sounds like you got to a point where that passion just came to the top and you've followed it ever since. Was Was it something that was inside there all along?
1: Yeah, I think it was there all along. You know, I was always rearranging my mother's furniture. My grandmother was always very accommodating, too, when I wanted to do things at her house. So I think it's just always been there. And, you know, when I was on those road shows on Wall Street, you know, where you go around and pitch your deals to all the stockbrokers, I'd be on the plane reading Architectural Digest and everybody else was reading Institutional Investor. I knew something was not right then.
0: I'm going to come back to you in a moment about the book itself, but I want to welcome Darren Walker. Darren. Thanks for being with us. We had uh, introduced you a moment ago. Darren, of course, is president of the Ford Foundation, a $16 billion social justice philanthropy, a distinguished career in philanthropy, and frankly, uh, a mentor and an inspiration to most of us in the nonprofit sector. Thanks for being with us, Darren.
2: Thank you, Billy. I'm so happy to be here.
0: You know, we were just talking, Darren, and I was asking Charlotte about how she came to be doing the work that she's doing. And I wanted to ask you the same question in a moment. We'll talk about how you came to be associated with this book, but let's start for those who, who have not followed your career as closely as Debbie and I have and others in the nonprofit sector. Where did this start for you?
2: Well, I was very lucky because like Charlotte, I started out on Wall Street as well at a law firm and then at an international bank. And I knew ultimately that I had a calling And that calling was to do something that could impact the African-American community, especially. And in New York, of course, Harlem was the community that I became completely fascinated with because I had read the Harlem Renaissance writers in college. And when I came to New York in the 1980s, Harlem was one of the first neighborhoods I visited, of course, in the 1980s. Finding Harlem in the condition that I found it was quite distressing. The community had really been just disinvested. I mean, the, the level of both poverty and in the midst of all of the go-go years of the 1980s in New York, with so much wealth being created that this very poor, low-income community could be right here on this island and be practically invisible to so many New Yorkers really concerned me. So I was lucky to meet Calvin Butts at the Abyssinian Baptist Church, and he changed my life. And I went to work for him and thus began my journey.
3: Before we jump into the book, which you wrote the foreword for, which was so powerful, even going back before college, I mean, I read that one of your big inspirations was when you were a busboy when you were age 13. And even before you got to school, maybe you could just like tell us what it was about that experience that shaped your future. Well,
2: there was no doubt that when I was a kid, I mean, growing up poor in the American South and Black, gay, different, absolutely. I was very lucky, however, I was in the first class of Head Start in the summer of 1965. In fact, it was the spring of 1965, a woman appeared on the dirt road where we lived in our little shotgun house to tell my mother about a new government program called Head Start and to offer to enroll me in that first class of Head Start, and that really was a game changer for me. It it started my quest and curiosity for learning and reading and all of the things that I think remain with me today. But when I was 13, I had my first job. I was a busboy. And when you are a busboy, if you've worked in a restaurant, you know that you're the bottom rung of the org chart, if you will. (laughs) And your job is to clean the bathrooms and to bus tables. But most importantly, your job is to be invisible and you are treated as if you are invisible. You are not acknowledged as you walk around the room and take the things that people are discarding. Your job is to as humbly and as meekly and as quietly as you can to get that work done. And of course, in the South, in the early 1970s for a black 13 year old boy to do that job, you really experienced what it felt like to be invisible to have your own dignity not acknowledged, your own sense of just being treated with any modicum of respect. And that for me was a seminal experience because it allowed me, and now in my role at Ford, to understand what it feels like to be invisible and to have some degree of empathy with the millions of people in this country and our beloved America who feel invisible, who feel that they are not acknowledged, that their dignity is not recognized, and that their dreams and hopes are not relevant, are not deemed important enough. And I think that's the work that we have to do in this country to make sure that we do, as I say at the Ford Foundation, we're in the business of hope. And that's a real privilege. And I take it every day
0: with just a huge honor. Well, Darren, you've put your finger on why this book is so important because of the awareness that it's generating and the resources it's going to raise and generate. Charlotte, you've had ideas for lots of books. Tell us where this book came from and how you got Darren involved. And Darren, I want you to tell us why you said yes, because as my sister said, you wrote such a beautiful forward to it and such a compelling and powerful one. Charlotte?
1: I wasn't going to let him say no. That's number one. I was going to I was going to keep going at him until he cratered. And he was gracious on first time to say yes. Thank you, Darren. You know, this book came as a result of one that Edith Wharton wrote. That was really the inspiration for the entire project. It was a book called The Book of the Homeless. It was what Edith put together this book to raise money for refugees in World War One. Teddy Roosevelt wrote that forward. And Edith, as Edith Wharton could, went to all of her friends in Europe to have them contribute what it is they do. Stravinsky wrote music. Rupert Brooke wrote a poem. Henry James wrote a story. Everyone did what they could do. And I remember when I first got that book, it was, I mean, maybe 15, 20 years ago. I think the last 10 years, it's been talking to me more. I just felt it's such a fabulous vehicle to be able to go to people without your hand out asking for money, to ask them to do what it is they do best and to contribute to a cause. And I just thought it was always great. And I've always joked that this book has been vibrating on my bookshelf for years. And at the beginning of the pandemic, I just knew it was the time. Watching the news, seeing the food lines, unemployment going off the chart. All those things happening and knowing that children were really going to suffer. And we did two challenges on our Instagram account and raised about $150,000. And I thought, shucks, if we can do one hundred and fifty through Instagram, what can we do if we really, you know, hit the gas here? So pulled the book off the shelf and decided to give it a go. I did think about it for a while because it was a huge commitment. I mean, you just don't write a book like this and go to 125 people and say, you know, I can do this. But I sat down with my husband one night at dinner and I said, it's time to do the Edith book. He said, are you ready? I said, I'm ready. I said, I have to do it. And he said, well, if you have to do it, then you must do it. So then I called some friends.
0: We should have been thanking your husband all along. Yeah,
1: he's he's special. Anyway, so I went to a group of friends. We all put together our list. We prioritized. Everybody went out with asks because we actually had more than a, 125 people to ask as a result of those lists. And I think in two months, we had 120 contributors. So, I mean, only five people said no to you? That's amazing. <laughs> no, we had more. You realize
3: the way you described how you came to this book and why Edith Wharton moved you is the underpinning, the core value of share of strength. I mean it's just so incredible to me. I'm so inspired by it because just to hear the way, how you were moved by getting other people to share their strength and their talent and their passion. And that's exactly how we built this organization question for you around. So it sounded like you called a few people and you wrote a few people. Like what was the kind of, what were the secret ingredients, if you will, that, that you got 120 people to say yes.
1: You know, I think it was all of us reaching out with enthusiasm for this project and the enthusiasm came back. And then through that enthusiasm, people express what they do, you know, their passions. And that is the sort of the irony of all this, Debbie, is that this is really philanthropy at its best. When people come together for a single cause and give of themselves. So really, in essence, sharing their strength is what you're all about, is what this book is all about. And it was phenomenal. And to see the diversity of the contributions in the book, I mean, poets, writers, stone carvers, photographers, it's really vast. And I think it's great bedtime reading. I mean, everybody's got something to read a little bit each night.
3: You probably can't pick your favorite child in this book, right? Like you couldn't say what stands out as the best.
1: No, I can't, because the fact that all of those people answered the call, that to me was the prize. I think it's the enthusiasm, the passion, everyone giving and being so enthusiastic about it in the beginning. And I think that just fuels you once you start.
0: So, Darren, as as Charlotte's talking about kind of the, the power of philanthropy and what it means, say a little bit about how there are so many important causes and the Ford Foundation has such significant resources how do you, uh, uh, as the leader of that foundation, how do you make decisions both for the foundation, and how do you make decisions personally in terms of the kind of things that you direct your resources and your talents at? Well, I mean, Billy, I think what you and Debbie
2: have done is a big part of why I'm here. Of course, Charlotte, she is so right when she says she wouldn't take no. But I do want to just acknowledge that. Take us back to that period when Charlotte was calling her friends and using her vast network, it was a, a moment when we were all experiencing deep anguish in this country, anguish over the impacts of COVID, which we immediately recognized as compounding the already deep inequality we have in this country. The people who were most vulnerable were poor, people of color who lived in rural communities. And so I think that what Charlotte did by using her privilege, I think we have to really name that. I mean, Charlotte is a woman of uh, amazing talent and character, but she also has a lot of privilege. She has, as she said, an amazing husband, and I will validate that he is amazing. But I will say she used that privilege, which is what Edith Wharton did. She used her privileged perch to raise awareness and consciousness of the conditions of particularly child poverty which is the most difficult and pernicious poverty that we have in this country and homelessness and the lack of food security i mean these are fundamental issues of basic human dignity that in america in 2021 we should be able to take for granted but what Charlotte reminded us, and what you remind us every day through the great work of Share Our Strength, is that there are far too many Americans who live without the dignity of shelter, of food, of nutrition, um, and particularly the most vulnerable among us, our children. So that's why this idea for the book was so compelling to me. And at Ford, our work Really is focused on addressing inequality in our country and in the world, and we come to that objective because our mission, as established by Henry IV the Second, was in part to strengthen democracy and democratic institutions. And we believe that inequality is harmful to democracy. We know from the work that we do around the world that where there are Societies with growing inequality, there is growing hopelessness and a lack of belief in the future, a more pessimistic and cynical assessment of the institutions in society that are supposed to serve you, most importantly, government. So, at the foundation, we are focused on inequality, and that inequality in our country has manifested in many ways. But the through lines are the isms that exist sexism racism, ableism, homophobia, the ways in which we have marginalized some of us and privileged others. And I just think that it's so important that projects like this, that really raise awareness and consciousness, we need to have our consciousness raised. And of course I'm proselytizing to the two PhDs here (laughs) <laughs> uh, on that issue, but it's really true. The work that you're doing, the work that uh, Charlotte has led in putting this book together, will have an impact on raising the consciousness of this country to this scourge that urgently needs our attention.
0: Well, I, I really appreciate that very powerful call to action, and your you know your generous words about our work. You know, one of the things we believe at share strength is that and it sounds a little glib but we always say that poverty is complex but feeding a child is not that's something we know how to do poverty is complex it's tied to inequality it's tied to structural racism but feeding a child that's a solvable problem we have the resources in this country to do it and what your support and the support of so many others enabled us to do before the pandemic was to add millions of kids to Programs like School Breakfast, you know, these are programs that were set up by admirals and generals after World War II, who said our troops were not strong enough by the end of the war. You were talking, Charlotte, about World War I and Edith Wharton. In World War II, our admirals and generals came back and they told Congress and they testified that we needed to feed kids in school so that they would be stronger and healthier. So, and then during the pandemic, of course, when the schools closed, we distributed more than a hundred million dollars to basically retrofit the school feeding system so that they could feed kids even when the schools were closed. So, you've probably seen stories about bus drivers who, instead of picking the kids up during the pandemic, dropped the meals off at the corners where they used to pick them up. Those were the kind of things we supported, and that's the kind of thing that you know your generosity is. Helping us to to continue. So there's a lot of work to do. The other, the other thing we say though, just as you know, poverty is complex. Feeding a child is not, is that uh, it takes more than food to fight hunger. It's not just about food. We've got to get to the root causes, and you know nobody's doing that better, Darren, than you are. We've got a lot to learn. We need to not only feed kids, but we need to get to the causes of inequality. We need to get to the causes of, of poverty, and educate and and raise awareness that it does take more than food to fight hunger. I think that's one of the, and one of the things I love about this book is it's so, the contributions to the book are so heartfelt about the power of home. And when you think about food and shelter as such universal uh, needs and desires, I think that's one of the reasons this book is going to resonate with so many.
3: Darren, I loved what you wrote in the foreword when you said, you are creating, I think, the call to action as a hunger and home for justice. So hunger and home for justice. I thought that was so great. And when I thought about the Ford Foundation, I, what really fascinated me was I always knew it was really big, did a lot of big global <laughs> things, attacked a lot of major issues. But what I was fascinated with was by justice and racial equality being kind of at the center of the work. But you're tackling huge issues many of which could be their own foundation and their own movement in and of themselves you know civic engagement future of work these huge climate change really big issues and i was wondering from a you know much smaller organization obviously than yours because we're dealing with other related issues to hunger ourselves how does the workforce manage you know the around the expectation so how do you sort of explain like yes this is our core mission but we're going to be tackling these huge issues, all of which, as I said, could be you know huge foundations of their own.
2: Well, I think the complexity is that if we're going to address the root causes of issues, they are often multi-layered, complex, and generational in terms of solving. And a lot of philanthropists, understandably, would like to get things done right now. and we'd like to get things done right now, but some of the underlying Causes and and challenges are not going to be solved in the next five years or or a a three year grant cycle. I am inspired by the words of of Dr. Martin Luther King when he talked about philanthropy. And he said the following Philanthropy is commendable, but it should not allow the philanthropist to overlook the economic injustice which Mm -hmm. makes philanthropy necessary. And what Dr. Mm -hmm. King was saying was we have to in philanthropy get under and excavate these fundamental underlying issues that cause poverty? Why is there poverty? Why do children go hungry? And what are those underlying reasons that keep families vulnerable so that children are hungry, for example? That's what we 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 work on. And those structural issues, as you say, Billy, whether it's structural racism, or it's the gender dynamics that render women and girls as chattel as as they are in much of the world where we work. Uh, how do we get at those structural issues? And there are ways, but it's not easy. And it's always contested. That's the challenge. It's, as you know, when you're working in the justice space, it's always contested. And you all know that at Share Our Strength, because yes, people think, well, this is great. They're helping children, but you're also doing something more radical. You're demanding that we look at ourselves in the mirror in this country and ask ourselves, are we who we say we are? How can we be who we say we are when this number of children are hungry? How can we be the most generous country in the world? The country where there is more opportunity in the world, where there is more aspiration, more dreams in the world, if millions of children are hungry. And that's the power of Share Our Strength and your leadership in this space. And I'm sure, Charlotte, for you, this is what motivated you. I mean, the call, because the book is not just a book, it's a call to action. That call to action is going to inspire thousands of
1: people. Charlotte, talk to us about
0: the role of artists in this too, Charlotte.
1: I just wanna say one thing following on what Darren was saying. There is an obligation, I think, at least I feel that, to, as you're talking about privilege, there is an obligation to leverage that privilege to greater goods, to, to bigger causes, bigger things, much bigger than ourselves. And I think that's what struck me in the very beginning here, to understand the statistics, of one in six. Is that the number now? Is is that verifiable? One in six children in the United States of America are food insecure. So just think about the number of kids up and down your street and think about one in six. To me, that's a harrowing statistic. And I think at the beginning of all this, that's what really struck me. And then when I did my homework and found out those numbers, that just sort of iced it, that this was a project that I had to do it. You know, But all these people, I mean, I just can't even express, first of all, my gratitude to all of them, but to see the diversity in what has turned out to create this book, the beautiful writing. I've gone through this book. I i think I've memorized it. There are just beautiful thoughts and quotes from everyone that I think will live on for a very long time. The drawings that were done. We even have a, an incredible stone carving that Nick Benson did. And to see the diversity of the contributions really spoke to the hearts of all those people. That's what they had to give. That's what created this book. I just hope this is a model for the future.
3: Another layer to all these attributes is that you had to do it. You did it around home. You did it around people's reflections of home during a time where, you know, we've all been stuck at home for two years. I mean, that's just another powerful layer to the book.
1: I, I don't think that there's um, any subject that we could write about that would be as powerful as this now, because we've all stared at the same four walls for such a yeah. long time that we all have a, maybe have the same spin, a new spin, or we're dreaming of a new spin on home as a result of having been uh, prisoners, so to speak. But it's the thing that unifies us all. You know, Nate Berkus said, our house tells our story. And I love mm-hmm. Seth Godin remarked that it's where our future begins. And there are just so many things like that that stop you and make you think about what home is. Even if it's Isaac Mizrahi's drawings of his dogs, they say home to him. Everybody had something unique to say. So that's what I think makes it an, an exciting, an exciting book.
3: Yeah. One of my favorites was from Enuma. Am I saying her name right? Akoro. Yes. I think the Nigerian American yes. author. And she talked about her love and passion for travel and how different countries brought out a different side of her, which I just love that imagery. And how she felt that her home was in all of these places. You know, it was yes. just
1: and I think what we'll see when people read it, they will see a lot of themselves in these various pieces in the book. It'll make you think about. Home in a different way.
0: We've got some questions from our audience that we're going to ask in a moment. But one of the things I didn't ask you, you, Charlotte, you said you didn't give Darren a choice that he couldn't say no, or that you weren't going to let him say no. Uh, how did you guys end up collaborating? How do you know each other? We didn't talk about that.
1: Gosh, Darren, I don't know. I remember we ran into each other on a plane in Egypt. Remember?
0: Indeed,
2: we've seen each other in different parts of the world. From
1: yeah, from and the Darren Middle was on East, the board of the New York City Ballet, and then, right? of
2: course with. Charlotte's wonderful husband who chaired the board of New York City Ballet. I was a director of the ballet and we love dance and Balanchine, all things Balanchine. And so I've known Charlotte and Barry for decades now. Her amazing skill at making homes beautiful and of people, of course, Never being able to afford someone like Charlotte, but well, and yeah.
0: Darren, I mean, since you run a sixteen billion dollar foundation, you don't you don't really want people to know what an easy touch you are, right? When when, when you get asked, you just say yes.
2: Well, Charlotte, <laughs> they, I mean, Charlotte has a, in the South, you know, we, we call women like Charlotte still magnolias because you know they present themselves as these genteel Southern uh, women, but in fact, they have brass knuckles. They are going to get done. <laughs> what or needs to knuckles. get done. And um, one <laughs> hey, way you're or another- You've just given it
3: away, Darren. Darren, question for you in the chat, if I may. You write about how hopelessness is the greatest threat to American democracy. How do we fix that? How do we fix hopelessness?
2: Well, we've got to fix hopelessness by bringing hope back. I mean, I think there are ways in which I think about my childhood. Growing up, a single mother, I never knew my father. We certainly did not have the- material trappings of of middle-class status but yet i was hopeful because i lived in a country that in the 1960s gave little boys like me who lived on dirt roads and shotgun houses the possibility of dreaming and not feeling that my dreams were constrained yes there were absolutely times when i felt that things were bad but i always felt that my country was cheering me on. I always felt that America wanted me to succeed. And it wanted me to succeed in that manifest in a great public school system. I always proudly say, I have never attended a day of private education in my life. And what I find in these various places I go from Davos to Aspen to wherever on these various panels and conversations that I'm always the only person who, who can say that. And that's, I think, not a good data point um, Mm -hmm. because I uh, believe that it's those public systems, the belief that I could go to college to a, a great public university in Austin, Texas at the University of Texas. I never, ever worried about the cost of education. It was never a barrier to me. And so I always felt that those, that I could dream and have hope. And I think today, if you ask young people, Are they hopeful? Do they feel that America is cheering them on? If going to college means they've got to take on six figures of debt, how can they be hopeful? How can they imagine being able to save to buy a home or to have the startup money for a business? So we've got to address those issues. And one way or another, if we want this country to be a country that produces social mobility, which is what America. This has been our superpower as a nation. The nation that produced more social mobility, more economic mobility, more people like me, born in the bottom 1%, now comfortably in the top 1%, those stories are becoming rarer in our country. Indeed, if you want the American dream, you should move to Canada because the Canadians are delivering and outperforming us by every indicator of mobility. And that is not something I say snarkily or with pride. Uh, I say that with great regret and distress uh, because this has been what has made America exceptional. And I think we are seeing less and less opportunity and we know why and we can address it. The question is, do we have the wherewithal and do we elites, those of us who have benefited, because as Charlotte was saying, during this pandemic, what we saw the levels of unemployment the levels of economic distress most americans lost ground during the pandemic we all gained we all gained because we live in new york we've got real estate we're invested in the market we've got all of the the inputs to be resilient and indeed to come out a- ahead on the other side of this pandemic and yet we aren't asking ourselves like what can we give back, we should be asking ourselves, what might we have to give up in terms of our privilege so that more Americans can have hopes and dreams and that we don't hoard the hopes and dreams that should be more evenly distributed so that we can see an America in the future with people who can dream and see those dreams and come into reality
3: super well said and a lot of work for all of us to do i think
0: uh, we need to publish a second book
3: yeah. immediately
0: darren
2: uh, those Charlotte words, has yeah. to get ready
3: She probably has another
2: 130 people she could she could harass this into doing volume this
3: one. A there's
1: thousands book of people out there thousands
3: before we get to any other questions in the chat i wonder from both of you just given this almost two years that we've had of I don't know what the word is. Huge challenge in so many ways. How have you both kept your spirits up? I have a feeling it's about diving into your crafts and your work. But Charlotte, what what has kind of kept you, you know, sane and and happy in the last year and a half?
1: Well, luckily, you know, work. The work is is there. You know, it's projects like this that I could sink my teeth into that made me think about the future. It was something positive to keep you going. Look, yeah. I can always decorate, you can do all those sort of things. Put all the commercial stuff aside. This was a project that made me see the future and know that we could do something to not necessarily change but make people think about how we can impact each other through projects like this and through all, all the contributors that that came together here. But I mean to me this was the ho- the hope that you were talking about Darren. This was the hope that this was looking to the future through a project like this was positive. And I have to say that what a rush it was when, you know, my assistant Kimberly was had all these spreadsheets. You know, we we joke about these big spreadsheets with everybody's name and their emails and what date we reached out and what day they responded and what they're doing and getting the copyrights. I mean, you just can't imagine the level of detail. But every time somebody said yes it was like hitting the jackpot when people said, no, I I just thought something was wrong with them. I mean, I just thought what the hell is wrong with them? Quite frankly, you know, they, yeah, everybody's got time to do something. Did you know some of these folks? Oh, yes. Oh yes. Yes, yes, yes. But these, the, all of these people came together through friends of mine and my own list. Mm -hmm. And so, no, it was a collective effort, a big collective effort.
2: During, this time of, of really amazing stress, it had to have been, I mean, in terms of the purpose and the the mission that it gave you, as you live, you know, as we were living through that moment of darkness to be able to do something that was a mission and a way affecting exactly what we were diagnosing as the problem.
1: I know, but I never saw the darkness, you know, I just never saw the darkness. Mm -hmm. It was all positive.
0: I wanted to ask you about Rosoli as well, because when they publish a book, particularly a Charlotte Moss book, it's a beautiful book. And were were they an easy yes also?
1: Oh no! So I I just was going to give my publisher a shout out because they they are my publisher of all my decorating books. But when I went to them with this with this idea, they just they said we're in, and they're just an an incredible publishing partner. And um, beautiful job. between my editor Philip Reiser. Charles Myers, my publisher. It's always a collective effort. You know what it takes. A, it does take the proverbial village to create one of these things, but they did it with such grace and with such ease.
3: It's affordable, um, too.
1: Really? That that book's a bargain.
3: It is really. I, I thought it was a misprint when I saw like fifty dollars I because what's in there is worth, you know, and you you touched on this. Uh, I just want to underscore it because it's something that we have found to be so true here, which is that people want to be—they always want to be connected to something larger than themselves—and that's yes. just another proof point. That book. Yes, and
1: you know, I find that sometimes people need that guidance. They yeah. need the guidance because they yeah. don't know what to attach themselves to. They don't know how to go about it. There is a little bit of a fear factor about their not being able to contribute as much as what others might expect mm-hmm. them to be able to contribute. And so that's what was the beauty of this project is that it wasn't about money, somebody writing a bigger check. It was all about doing what you do. That I think is the thing that really, really made it made it work.
0: Darren, we didn't get your response to the question of how you kept yourself well and sane and sustained during this period.
2: Well, you know, I think it's all about work. I was very lucky. I mean, I am fortunate because... I have the rare privilege of having both my vocation and my avocation converge in my (laughs) career. Who gets to come to work every day? And the things that you're most passionate about, you deal with at the top of the day. I mean, many people go to work and the thing that they're passionate about, they do outside of work. And so I'm, I'm super lucky that Uh, I come to work on any given day, and the first meeting is with a human rights organization. And uh, after that, there's a meeting with a dance company or a theater director, and I finish the day with a group of uh, racial justice advocates. It's rich and interesting and meaningful. And I think the reason this project is so powerful is because we were all searching for meaning and a way to address, contribute, deal with. What we were experiencing during those really challenging times at the height of covid and so for me it was about purpose i mean i i don't have to tell you billy and debbie every day if you live with purpose and your purpose is impacting the lives of other people in ways it gives life meaning as, as charlotte was saying earlier it's bigger than any of us and that's the north star And so for me, in spite of the fact that I I agree, Charlotte, it was dark. It was really dark in our neighborhood at the height of COVID. But yeah, our job is to bring light. And this Mm -hmm. is for those of us with privilege, for whether we're at the Ford Foundation or wherever, we ought to bring light in the room wherever we go.
1: I think that, you know, bringing the light, you know, it is bigger than we are. You know, you can wallow around in misery if you choose to get all in a funk about these things or you can just rise above it and not let it get you down. And I think that there were times when, you know, I was quite frankly, a little tired because I was finishing writing another book and helping edit another book. And this was the big project. I'd have to take long walks, you know, long walks by myself to just have talks with self, you know, you know, we all have to do that. But you just have to find that silver lining. I hate to use those sort of you know phrases, but that's what it was. This was an opportunity to create that silver lining in a really dark time, and to give people an opportunity to do something that they love doing. And it just felt like a win-win from the very beginning. Edith, she got it going, you know. And we've done number two now, and somebody else is going to do number three and do it bigger no and question. better. I just know. Yeah. So that's the great outcome of something like this. Yeah. That hopefully it's going to be a catalyst to more. Because think of all the people out there that can do something.
0: You know, and Darren, as you were talking about your work, We were speaking just moments before you came on about, you know, our podcast is called Add Passion and Stir and the role that passion plays. And, you know, so many people either set their passion aside because they feel like they have to, or the economics dictate it. And first they're going to do something in their career and then they get to it and they realize that that's what they've been driving towards all along. So uh, it's a very powerful ingredient. And it's, you know, it's hard to separate any of the things that we've, any of us have done in our lives from where we are today. I guess I would ask you both, do you have to start on Wall Street to get to your passion or can you go straight to it?
1: No, I just think I got smart and I left, you know.
0: But you probably learned stuff there that drove you towards where you are.
1: Look, you know, Billy, I am forever grateful of having been there because I learned so much sales, marketing, you know, balance sheets. You you learned so much that's a good foundation for a business. But what I also learned is it, it wasn't for me. You know, there was something else that was like, you know, burning a hole, and the time was right, and you just jump off the cliff, just like this project. You must do it, Barry said. You must do it.
3: Thank you for listening to that voice. Well, we're we're running
0: out of time here. I, I hope that someday you'll we we can either take you both on the road, or you'll take us on the road with you. I, I love being in this conversation, and I've learned a lot. You know, as we wrap up, Darren, and I just wanted to. Ask you to suggest any followers of the Ford Foundation or people that need to be followers of the Ford Foundation. What should they be looking at? Where can they go to learn more? What's the best way to follow your work and your words? Well, of course, our website is www.fordfoundation.org.
2: My Twitter is at Darren Walker and on Instagram it's Darren C. Walker. I uh, will say that I remain, in spite of the challenges, very hopeful in this moment and optimistic because i believe in the goodness of the american people to respond to calls to action to mobilize to address the systemic and structural and significant challenges our country faces but the majesty of this american democracy is of the three legs of the stool of which you all represent one nonprofit civil society sector that is so essential to a healthy democracy and that Alexis de Tocqueville wrote about in 1830, the unique way in which Americans come together to collectively address problems and challenges. And I think what you all are leading at Share Our Strength is exactly the model that this country needs to solve these big problems. It's not just about ameliorating the conditions, because yes, you do provide services, but you also demand action. You also advocate based on the evidence that you have built over many years of best practice, what works and what doesn't work to inform better policy. So I'm just grateful that your organization exists and that the two of you have led Share Our Strength with such courage, such commitment, and just unwavering belief in the power of America to be better, to rise to the occasion, and to address some of these fundamental issues. So thank you for your leadership. So great. Thank
3: you.
1: I'll second that and also say that the last year and a half has been an incredibly pleasurable experience working with the staff. They've just been really, really special and we have loved working with them. Kimberly, of course, has been in touch with them on a regular regular basis, but we had our update meetings. They couldn't have been a better team to partner with on this project. But I just want to say one thing also. I hope that projects like this open up and expand the definition of philanthropy because of the nature of this project, that there are so many ways to give. And it's not, as I said before, It's not about the big checks that are written this all really comes from the heart however you can give and um, it's just important that we all do
0: well thank you you. I, i i have the same aspiration for this charlotte and i'm grateful for the outlook that both of you have i'm going to be quoting your words of optimism uh darren because uh my optimism i have found out is uh, sometimes annoying to people sometimes to my own family certainly sometimes (laughs) to my colleagues but i fundamentally believe it i think you know there's uh so many talented people out there so many have strengths to share to me that's the hope of our democracy and if we can create the vehicles to engage them as charlotte has done as you've done darren uh we'll get to a better place yeah i think we're
1: all cheerleaders at heart in a way you know you know that's right i'm so glad we all found
3: each other thank you both for just sharing so much of of yourselves with us and for everything you've done for the book